I guess I was already primed for some of the things I want to say today in making that announcement. But I'd like us to go back to Acts 8. I think that may be where we wound up last week. I want to pick up some of the story thread from last week's sermon because some of the more encouraging and hopeful scriptures I had put down at the end, and I kind of hit us over the head with some difficult ones, uh, and maybe we'll have a few more of those, but, uh, but there is hope, and I'd like to get on down to that before we're done. But we need to understand why things are the way they are here at the end. We need to understand what God is doing and how he's doing it, and some of the things that have to happen in order for his purposes to be worked. We are a work in progress to become the bride of Christ himself. And none of us, and no one who's ever lived, has ever been fully prepared or qualified to fulfill that position in the universe. Not Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Paul, James, John, or anyone else has been perfectly qualified. But if you will look back through history, as expounded in the Bible, you will find that those people went through all kinds of trials and tests and difficulties to prepare them for what God had for them to do. And we, ahead of the rest of the physical nation of Israel and the world, have been given a great deal of trial, trouble, and difficulty uh, in the last 20, 30 years especially since the church began to come apart because we have to find our direction, find our way, find what we need to do, find out how to get it done, and then do it. And it's not easy, and often our attention would stray if that were allowed. So God puts upon us various things to bring us around, to make us think, to make us react to him properly, because we are what we are, and he wants us to become what we can be. And without pushing, without pressure, we would never make it. A diamond would never become a diamond without heat and pressure. It just simply would not happen, because that's what's required to make diamonds. And if we're to be jewels in the crown of God in Christ, then we have to have heat and pressure. And I think that we need to have an approach to this world, as these things are coming apart now, not of judgment, not of condemnation. Yes, there's a great deal of sin out there in the world, even as there's plenty in us yet. And it's easy for us to get down on people, I suppose, and look down upon this world. Now we are to look down upon sin, but not down upon sinners. And we need to be very, very careful of our attitude, because God is putting us under pressure even as he is about to put the people of this world under pressure. And what he is going to have to do is ratchet that pressure up to the point that most people who walk the face of the earth today are going to have to physically die before he begins to get their attention. 
Isn't it sad? Because you can go out in this world and encounter people at the checkout counter or in a restaurant or wherever, mechanic shop, wherever you go, wherever you do business, you can find people that are nice, decent, lovable people. In many cases they have nice senses of humor, they're easy to work with and get along with. Some of them are even eager to serve and to help you. Some are not, but some are. But they're going to have to die. And they're going to have to suffer horribly in many cases before they die because that's what it's going to take to get their attention. Now, we also have to die. Maybe physically, but certainly our nature, our way of thinking has to die. I die daily, Paul said. He had to crucify the flesh because the flesh is alive and wants to live and wants to be whatever it wants to be. And we encounter that every day in our attitudes and our approach to life and our approach to others. It's hard to be humble. It's easy to be proud. It's easy to be vain and not meek. It's easy to want what we want, and if somebody gets on us, it's easy to fight back. And not, we're not supposed to resist, even if we suffer wrongfully, as we were read to in 1 Peter 2 in the sermonette. But that's what it's going to take to get those people's attention. And God has been doing quite a bit to try to get our attention, hasn't he? But you know... If you go through the book of Ezekiel, and we started through it, never did quite finish it, we'll get back to it someday, God willing, and I think that he is willing. Over and over and over again, remember how it said, and they will know that I am God. And when those things are said, it's usually in the context of some very drastic actions God is going to take to get people's attention. So we need to understand that's part of the program and be compassionate toward the people of this world as we see what is going to happen. God is going to send a warning and a gospel message to all of them, but they will hate it and reject it. They just don't grasp and understand. Maybe nice people, but if they're not tuned in to God, what good does that do? You know, we can be nice people too. Well, some of us sometimes can be nice people, can't we? And maybe most of us most of the time can be nice people. But does that make us spiritual just because we could be nice people? No, it doesn't. Well, let's pick it up in Acts 8 a little bit. I want to use an example here to show what God is capable of. Saul was consenting to Stephen's death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. So they just stoned Stephen, and Paul was standing back saying, yeah, got it, let's go get some more. That was his whole attitude toward the church. 
Let's kill them all. Let's imprison them all. Let's destroy that movement. That was his whole attitude and approach to life. To Paul, the church was a bitter enemy. <clears throat> he had been trained to look to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to Moses only. And to him, Christ was a great imposter, trying to take the place of those revered fathers or gods, if you will, of the Jews. And he hated it with a passion. Now notice, the church at Jerusalem was persecuted and, and scattered. They were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the church itself, everybody had to run for their life. But God allowed the apostles to stay there and protected them so that they might go ahead and pop the Jews in the nose. Not physically, but certainly with words. Well, see, God made a separation for his purpose. Were the apostles better than the other people that God allowed to be scattered? No. They had a job and a mission to perform. So God allowed that pressure to come on everybody else, but he kept them there. Now, there were times when the apostles themselves went through great and terrible persecution, but not at this particular moment because God had something to do. Devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. You know what havoc is? He tore it apart. When someone wreaks havoc on your house, it means that the drapes are torn down, the couch is upside down, and there's dog manure on the floor, or whatever. He wreaked havoc on the church. Entering into every house and hailing men and women committed them to prison. Well, he went through every house of Christians that he could find, tore things apart, and put them in prison. Let's go on down a little bit. Uh, skip over Simon Magus, down to chapter 9. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Eternal, went to the high priest. So he, he was cursing under his breath, maybe outright, loudly cursing the people of God and talking of slaughter. So he went to the high priest and desired of him letters to, to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, of God's way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He wanted the authority to bind, imprison, even kill every Christian he could find. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He didn't really know him. Who are you? But 
Christ had his attention, didn't he? When you're struck down with a great light and fall on your face, they get your attention. I guess. Never happened to me. Never happened to you. But who knows what will happen to people in the future. Because God is going to begin to, to move dramatically, even as he did in those days. On the world and on the church. On you and me. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, or Christ, whom you persecuted. It is hard for you to go against your conscience, to kick against what I'm trying to do, to do what you want to do. It's hard for you to change that. And he, trembling and astonished, said, What would you have me to do? It's hard for you to give up what you're doing and do what I want to do. But he had his attention. What do you want me to do? And the Eternal said to him, Arise, go into the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. Didn't tell him right away, did he? <clears throat> Left him in confusion, bewilderment, and frustration. Now here was the one that he had hated telling him he had something for him to do, and then wouldn't even tell him what. The men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no man. They could hear what was going on, but they couldn't see a thing. That would have been scary too, wouldn't it? Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. He'd been struck blind. But they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. Pretty astonished, pretty scared, pretty frustrated, couldn't see, didn't eat and drink. There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him, and to him said the Eternal in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. <clears throat> The Lord said to him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prays. <laughs> this is a man that hadn't prayed before, but he was pretty scared, pretty blind, and he was praying. And as seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Now God was going to take one of these Christians and used him to restore Saul's sight. And he came to Saul in a very dramatic way, and he came to Ananias in a dramatic way. And he put them on a collision course with each other to accomplish his purposes. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And I says, you, you sure this is the right man? Boy, the things I've heard about him. Sometimes we question what God does. Who he works through, how he works through them. Ananias had trouble believing this. <clears throat> I've heard how much evil he's done to the saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on your name. But the Eternal said to him, Go your way, for he is a chosen vessel to me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. 
He had a three-part commission to fulfill. And here is probably the man who had been the biggest enemy of the church. Had killed some, had imprisoned others. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. I'm calling him, I have a job for him, and he is going to have to suffer for my name's sake. And I think Paul, when you look at the New Testament story, probably suffered more than any other of the disciples, of the apostles, of the members of the church. Being stoned three times, being shipwrecked, being snake bit, being uh, chastised and persecuted in many, many ways. Paul had a rough row to hoe. And not only that, then he had physical impairments, perhaps almost blindness uh, later on, and had to write in very large letters and able to, in order to even see to write. Uh, so he had a rough road to hoe. Ananias went his way and entered into the house, putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, I wonder how easy that came out. Ananias had a very, very low opinion of Saul. And yet God said, go to him. And Ananias even questioned Christ. But then when he approached him, he got, he'd gotten his attitude under control. He had said, that's what you want, Lord? That's what I'll do. And he called him Brother Saul. That must have been a throat constrictor. Brother Saul, the Lord, even Emmanuel, that appeared to you in the way as you came, has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. Well, that's how this man had an absolute about face. Pretty dramatic, isn't it? Pretty scary. Now we have some dramatic and scary things coming up in the world to help us wake up and be what we should be, and then for the world to go through to wake up and be what they should be. To be humbled, to decide to do what God wants done instead of what they want done. A pretty good example of how God can get people's attention. Do you think that if Christ had just appeared to Saul and said, I'm Emmanuel or I'm Yeshua, I'd like for you to do things for me? How big of an impression would it have made upon Saul? Would he have been converted? No, he would have probably tried to rip his head off because he hated him with a passion. God has his ways of getting our attention. Let's go to Mark 10. Now, I'm only going to touch, really, on a very small smattering of scriptures, and yet, in the course of these two sermons, quite a few 
showing the point I'm driving at, and, and part of it is to show us the preponderance of Scriptures that say these things. There are a lot of them. And it's all through the Bible, in fact. We could make, if we wanted to just go through them all, where God's people had trials, troubles, tri tribulation, difficulties, we could have a whole year of sermons easily going through each case verse by verse. But we'll get a smattering here to give us the idea. Mark 10, uh, well, verse 29. Now, oh, wait a minute. I'm not in. I'm in 9, no wonder. Let's go to verse 29. And Emmanuel answered and said, Truly I say to you, there is no man that has left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And God said, if you will give up your family, your home, your land, your children, your wife, your husband, whatever you have to give up and come and follow him, you will receive those things back in this life a hundredfold. Does that mean you'll have a hundred husbands or wives? I don't think so. But we do have a much bigger family, don't we? Maybe you gave up your immediate family and relatives, but then you gained a loving family in God's church. I have, well, I started to say many fathers and mothers here. I'm getting so old that probably doesn't apply, but brothers and sisters and, and children maybe. <laughs> uh, but we have a lot of people here that we love and love us and will share with us and give to us and we can give to them. And those of the past have been replaced. I feel much closer to the people of God in His church who have the attitudes of Christ than I do to much of my own family, blood family, because we're spirit family. And if the spirit and mind and attitude is right, then we should draw closer than we were to our physical families. And this is where our heart is and will be. But notice, you'll receive all those things, but you'll also, with it, receive persecutions. That's just part of the deal. 2 Corinthians 12. Here I want down oh, about verse 10. Therefore I take pleasure... Well, let, let's, let's go up a little bit. Uh, verse 7, lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. God had given him revelations. He had given him the dream, uh, the vision, the time he was struck down. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. So even though Paul had been used of God and had been given, if you will, inside information coming from God, with it God tempered it by giving him, giving him a physical malady 
there was a day-to-day affliction and problem, and not only apparently did it affect his sight, it also affected his looks because people had difficulty looking at him. So even as he spoke, they didn't like to look at him. That's in another verse somewhere. I, I forget exactly where. For this thing I besought the eternal thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. God is a healer. He wants to heal. And yet he put this on Paul for a reason. And even though Paul implored him, prayed, asked, and he was an apostle. He was chosen. He was given a commission, a three-part as we saw. One of the most important men that has ever walked the face of the earth, not because he was himself great, but because of the job that God had given him to do, one of God's most loved people had this put on him, and God would not remove it. No. No. No! Ask him three times. No. My grace is sufficient. My love, my mercy, you have that. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So though Paul was weak-looking, and as he said, weak-speaking, and weak-eyed, God spoke through him because he needed humility and meekness. He had been a very vain, egocentric person, fighting God himself, taking on the church. God said, I'm going to have to humble you, Paul. This is what it's going to take. I heard Fred someone told someone the other day, I hope my attitudes are different. I hope I've changed. In other words, he's been going through great affliction, through great difficulty. But it's worked on his approach. It's worked on his attitude. He feels that he's changed some attitudes. I don't know what attitudes he's talking about. I don't care. Whatever attitudes he might have had that he deemed to be wrong attitudes, this sickness, this difficulty, have caused him to change them. Now, would those have changed had he not been afflicted? Or would they have changed as fast had he not been afflicted? How many of us have worked on attitudes that we might recognize either openly or somewhat that we know aren't right and need changed? And how fast do we change them? How easy is it for them to change? Sometimes we put up with attitudes we know might be wrong for year after year after year, don't we? So God allowed Paul to have this, and he simply would not heal him. Now, did Paul have faith? Yes, he did. Did Paul know that God could heal him? Yes, he did. 
But God made it abundantly clear to Paul that he would not for his own reasons and purposes. My strength is made perfect in weakness. He wanted Paul to have perfect strength. And the weakness is what created that. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. How many of us glory in our infirmities, in our difficulties, in our sicknesses, in our illnesses? That is a difficult thing to achieve. But Paul recognized that the spiritual and the attitude changes he needed to make were more important than his physical comfort and health. Now why is it God has called a generation of people into his church and he's worked with them for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years and we're almost at the end, aren't we? of this generation that God has called. Now, there's some young people, yes. But for the most part, the overall generation that God called, and when he began to call big numbers of people, it was in the late 50s, early 60s, and into the 70s when he called big numbers of people. And those people are aging rapidly. And you know what happens when you age? Your ears go away, your eyes go away, uh, comfort goes away, your jo joints begin to ache, your memory begins to fade. All kinds of things begin to happen to you as you age. And God is bringing the end of all these things primarily upon an old people. Because some of the things we need to learn, we learn through infirmity through difficulty, through pain, through agony, if you will. Because we do not learn easily. And sometimes it takes pain, just like it did with Paul. I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in things that I need, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then... Am I strong? When do we call out to God most imploringly? When do we seek Him the most? When we're in pain of one form or another, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual pain, that's when we tend to call out. When things are going well and we feel good, we have a nice job and our physical health's good and uh, everything is going well, we tend to leave God aside. We tend to not focus on Him nearly so much. But when we have trouble with our wife or our husband or our children or our employer, if we have one, and with our health, with our finances, with all the things that can afflict human beings, then we tend to seek God. So in whatever weakness it is, there's where we gain spiritual strength. Sometimes we might think, well, God just doesn't answer us. And maybe his, our, maybe his answer to a certain point is 
You need to suffer in order to grow spiritually. I wish it were different. I wish that when the rainbow was shining and everything was feeling good, that I would say, thank you, God, for all the good you do, and I have blessings coming in right and left, and everything is just hunky-dory in my life. I wish that when things were that way, I would seek God with my whole heart. But that's when I tend to forget Him the most. It's sad that we are the way we are, isn't it? It's sad that usually we call out for help only when we're in trouble. And therefore, to get us close to God, it seems we have to have trouble. Now, this, this physical trouble, trials, difficulty, someday will be over. But it's the spiritual strength that we gain and that we learn that is important. Now, for his purposes, pretty soon he's going to turn it around. And we're going to have blessings like we've never had before. I ask you, are we ready? Can we handle that? Now, if we take a true self-assessment and look back on our lives, I think I would honestly have to say personally, I've never been ready for God to open the windows of heaven and pour out his blessings upon me so that I could not contain it. Because I didn't have the character to handle it. If God had given me all those things in absolute abundance, I'm afraid I would have forgotten him. Because I can look back and see when things were going really, really well here and there in my life. Those are the times that I prayed less and studied less and sought God less than times that I've been in trouble. It seems like God's had to give me a lot of trouble over the years. No, that's wrong. I created it and God let it happen. Because most of our troubles are self-inflicted one way or another. But it seems to be necessary, unfortunately. I am become a fool in glorying. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended of you, for in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Well, he said, I'm among the leading men in the church, and yet I'm nothing. And what it took was these afflictions to keep him in the attitude of I am nothing. Now, we might say with our lips, and we might understand in our mind that we are nothing. Okay? We know, compared to God, academically, we're nothing. But now wait until somebody jumps all over us, wait until somebody disagrees with us, and see how quickly we think we're something. Because when we react and resist and try to stop someone else from giving us a hard time, 
That is our vanity, that is our ego, that is our pride showing. In other words, when we become angry, when we are buffeted, whether we deserve it or not, and it's much harder when we know we don't deserve it, suddenly we think we're something. Now, we may not think we're much, and you might even say, I may not be much, but I'm better than you. In attitude, we might not say those words outright. But suddenly a comparison is made. Because even though we might understand we're nothing compared to God, compared to somebody else who might be giving us a hard time, we're something. And our attitude and our justifications prove it to us. And that's why we react the way that we do. My opinion is better than yours. My assessment is better than yours. I may, be, I may not be much, but I'm more than you, is what we're saying when we react that way. As I've said before, how many times can you try to lovingly correct someone or disagree with them and have them react humbly, meekly, without becoming defensive and trying to defend their position and their thinking in their way? Very rare. We might think we're meek and humble, but let somebody say something we don't like, suddenly we're full of pride and ego and we're going to prove I'm right. Hardest thing for people to admit is that they're wrong. So hard to do. Well, if you're nothing, can't you be wrong pretty easily? Couldn't somebody else's opinion matter? But every one of us is full of pride and vanity. And we don't like the self to be stepped on whatsoever. It goes against our nature. So he said the things that he said here. Truly the signs of an apostle were worked among you in all patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. He said, I've been doing the job that I was given to do, and yet I still look and sound pretty weak. But he gloried that the meekness and humility that was required of him by his afflictions was good for him. And he could therefore glory and be, glory and be happy in his troubles. Let's see. Second Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, about verse 11. Well, let's go to 10. But though you have fully known my doctrine, manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, or long-suffering, love and patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all, the Eternal delivered me. Yes, and all that will live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. You know, the world in many respects is more or less neutral to us today. 
if it even knows of us. Could care less, basically, what we're doing or why we're doing it or where we are and what we're doing. Really? Isn't that the case? We're not suffering a lot of undue persecution. We're living fairly peacefully, aren't we? There may be people around this area that think we're kind of a strange religious group over there. But they're basically living, letting us live, aren't they? They're not over here uh, throwing rocks at us or eggs or rotten tomatoes. They're basically just leaving us be. In other words, it's kind of neutral, more or less. And it is for the whole church, not just us here. We've been taught in this society today to be tolerant. In other words, let people believe anything they want, do anything they want. We'll just be tolerant and patient and we won't be condemnative. Now what that really does is allow people to degenerate. That's kind of what's behind the thinking. Let them be whatever they want to be. And people will be things they shouldn't be when you put them under those circumstances. But nevertheless, the whole church, including us, is basically not afflicted or persecuted now. Now, we are anticipating, are we not, from reading Isaiah, Jeremiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and other places, we're anticipating that God is going to turn his face to us at some point in the near future. He is going to begin to bless his people. He's going to begin to gather his people. And he is going to bless his people in ways that are beyond comprehension. Let me ask you a question. When God turns to us, what will the world's reaction be? If God turns to us, the world will turn against us. We'll no longer be in neutral. Anytime God begins to do something with his people, just as he did in the days of Peter, James, John, Paul. He begins to heal. He begins to bless. He begins to help. The world turns against. And Saul was part of the world. He turned against the church with a venom. And it was only being struck down in a very dramatic fashion that changed his attitude. Now, God was able to accomplish that. Just in one fell swoop, he accomplished it. God can do enormous miracles very, very quickly. And when he begins to do things for us, we're going to find the world will begin to do things against us. We need to brace ourselves and be prepared. Because the world hates righteousness, and it hates God, frankly. Samuel said, they haven't rejected you, Samuel, they've rejected me. Because Samuel was doing the things God wanted done, therefore the world, the people around him, the nation, hated Samuel. And God realized where the hate really was directed, even as Christ realized where Paul's hate was directed. It wasn't really at those people. 
as much as it was against Christ himself. You don't want to do what I want done. Well, I'm going to change your attitude. Then, then Saul says, what do you want me to do? And this whole world is going to have to go through destruction and death before they're going to say, what do you want me to do? When the millennium is ready to start, people will have gone through great tribulation and they will have dropped their vanity, their pride, their ego. And instead of saying, I'll do what I want to do, like most Americans and people on the face of the earth would say today, their attitude will be totally different. And they'll say, what do you want me to do? I've had enough of this. Now what do you want me to do? He's going to do the same thing with the world that he did with Saul. Strike them down. Knock them silly. And then they're going to say, what do you want me to do? Can you change them now? Can I change them now? There's no way mere words are going to change people's minds. What if we were to stand on the corner over in St. George, say, and preach to people and say, you need to repent and turn to God or you're about to go through the worst tribulation that has ever been on the face of the earth. You know what they're going to do? They're all going to gather around and say, what do I need to do? What can I do? I want to do that. In a pig's eye, <laughs> they'll brand you as the craziest lunatic on earth and say, you see that guy standing down there on on Tabernacle and Third? Crazy. Talking about the world to repent. Now anything you say, anything I say, anything the two witnesses say will be looked upon as ridiculous and stupid. They will not pay any attention. Mere words will never, ever change this world. Now, God so loved this world, the people in it, that he gave his only begotten Son, that they might not perish but have life everlasting. Now, I guess it seems strange to human beings that God would have to put people through famine and poverty and disease of every kind to get them to think and to change their attitudes, but that's what it takes. There seems to be no getting around it. Acts 17. If I'm going to get where I'm going, I better hurry. Um, down about verse 6. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren to the rulers of the city, took them right down to the leadership, rulers of the city, crying, these that have turned the world upside down are come here also. Now how have they turned the world upside down? All they had done, if you go back and read the account, is tell a story about Christ, is tell a story about the gospel, the coming kingdom of God, 
And it turned the whole world upside down in their view because they had a totally different worldview than the church did. So when you begin preaching the truth of God, it turns the whole world of people upside down. They don't want to hear that. You've experienced on a personal level, haven't you? <laughs> haven't you tried to tell your relatives, your friends in the past about God and about the truth of the Bible? And it turned their whole world upside down. And they turned your whole world upside down. I mean, the claws came out, the fangs came out, and they didn't want to hear it. That's the way it's going to be with this world. God can literally commission you and send you to tell them the way things really are. They'll hate it with a passion. They'll say you're turning the world upside down. Matthew 24, 9. In connection with that. Now did I say earlier, if, you, if God turns to us, the world will turn against us? Matthew 24, verse 9, it talks about the troubles coming on the earth, and then it says, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all peoples for my name's sake. <coughs> Those few people who obey God at the end time are going to be hated of every person on earth. Now, if that is to happen, then you have to be known by all people on earth, right? If they don't even know of you, how are they going to hate you? <coughs> what God is going to do is put his church in the forefront of the rulers and the peoples of this earth. Just as Peter, James, John, the other apostles, and Paul, as he became Paul, were put in front of the leaders, in front of the public, and they preached Christ and Him crucified and resurrected. And they all hated them and tried to kill them. Now God is about to do that with His church. Now this has got to be fairly dramatic, doesn't it? I mean, just take that one verse, Matthew 24, 9, and it says an incredible amount. Now, God is not just talking when he said in Ezekiel, they will know that I am the Lord. And when he says that he is going to bless us and protect us and put a wall of fire around us and a covert from the heat above us, there's a reason for that, and that is that very shortly now, God is going to put us in the absolute forefront of the consciousness of this world. He is going to do it through some pretty dramatic means. If the past is anything of a barometer or a pattern, there will be healings. Many scriptures, I believe, show 
that he is going to bring out his temple treasures, that those holy grails and the various things that all the movies are talking about that the world is searching for under that Jerusalem over there, God is going to bring out through his people. And they're going to be an absolute living testimony before the world that God is God. No denying it. They will no longer be neutral. Then they will hate us with a passion. And we will be known of all people. God has some pretty dramatic things coming. We are to seek to be worthy and to pray that we be accounted worthy to escape all these things that are coming. And he says if we'll obey him, he will. And he will forgive our sins as a cloud, there in Isaiah 44. And one day, and that our righteousness will not be our own, which is filthy rags, but it will be his righteousness there in the last verse of Isaiah 54, I think it is. So if you think we have had trials, troubles, and tribulation to this point in the shattering of the church and the confusion and frustration that the church has felt, it's nothing compared to what's just around the corner. Now in one way, you'll be famous. Maybe infamous is the right word. Everybody wants their 15 minutes of fame in this world. Well, we're going to be better known than any Hollywood star has ever been known. We're going to be recognized above every rock star that has ever walked the stage. There will be no neutrality. You know, no matter who you are on the world stage, you'll have some who love you and some who hate you. You can be President of the United States and you'll have some who love you and some who hate you. It comes with the territory. It comes with the job. Now with us, there's no two ways about it. There won't be some love and some hate for us. It's going to be all hate. We'll be known, we'll be the best known people on earth and the most hated people on earth because we love God and because God loves us. Well, that's a strange situation. That's the way it's going to be. You'll be hated of all peoples for my name's sake. Well, let's go to Romans 8, <clears throat> lest we all faint and fall out of our chairs and say, I can't handle this. Romans 8. I really, I guess, ought to go through the whole chapter of Romans 8. It's, it's a very powerful chapter in the Bible, one of the most powerful. starts out by talking about how it's so easy to be carnally minded, and that that's the way of death, and we need to be walking in the Spirit. And if we walk in the flesh, we cannot please God, and we have to mortify the deeds of the body so that we can live. That's verse 13. 
And then he begins to talk about what we will receive for what we're having to go through. Let's pick it up down there, uh, verse 16. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We understand that this is the church of God and that there is no other church of God on earth. I'm not speaking of just this little group. I mean the people that God has called out wherever they may be scattered today. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. <clears throat> There's one of those things that is a blessing. You know, you, you may have been disinherited in some cases by a father or a mother who thought your religion was crazy. I won't give a dime to those people. I've heard those words said before of God's people. But we're joint heirs of God, not of some man that might have a few bucks. If so be that we suffer with him. He suffered a lot. Go all through his life and see the hate, the misery, the persecution that was given to him in his physical life on this earth. But if we're joint heirs with Christ, then we have to suffer with him. He was hated of all peoples, pretty much. And we will be as well. And we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And that's a matter of faith, of believing in something so big, so grand, the resurrection of the dead, the glorification of the body, to live forever eternally in peace and happiness and joy and fulfillment. What an incredible opportunity that is ahead of us when we understand it. And that's why we're able to go through what we go through. For the earnest expectation of the creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Christ put down his vanity and was meek and humble. And when he was railed against, he answered not a word. That's incredible. Because the creation itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And we're waiting for the redemption of the Spirit. Go down to verse 35. We've already read this, I believe. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? Death. Can't be separated. But he said that we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. The next verse. You know what happens when sheep go to the slaughter? They get their throats cut. A lot of God's people are going to have their throats cut because 90% of the church is going into the great tribulation. And there they will be persecuted and martyred, hated of all people. And God is going to save out and protect the 10% remnant who turn to the, him with their whole heart. Now, I believe that it takes trouble, trial, pain, affliction, 
persecution, difficulty, unemployment, physical pain, emotional pain, to bring us to the spiritual place we need to be so that we will turn to God with our whole heart. Half-hearted is not near enough. Three-quarter-hearted is not enough. <clears throat> God wants our whole being, our whole focus. If we really understand this, Romans 8, 31, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? It doesn't matter if the whole world is against us. If God is for us, that's all that matters. He's already promised us that of all these things we're reading about in the New Testament here, He promised us in the Old Testament about the latter days that He would be a wall of protection around us, that He will take care of us. And our faith and our hope and our belief is in those Scriptures. And we know that if we will turn to Him, focus on Him, that we'll be delivered. Now, I've been pretty rough the last couple, three weeks on us, sermons. But it's not because I'm mad. It's not because I'm angry. It's that I'm concerned that each and every one of us here give up a lot of the things of this life that distract us from turning to God. Let's go to Luke 21 in that context just a minute. just came to mind. Luke 21. Where is that? Verse 34. Take Now, he's talking here about the troubles that are about to come down, about the tribulation. It's a parallel cha chapter to Matthew 24 about the horrible things and having to pray that we escape all these things that are to come. So he gives some instruction here. Verse 34, Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged or too interested in or too devoted to or too much involved with. There are a lot of different ways you could say this too much attention paid to partying, drunkenness, and cares of this life, so that, that, so that day come upon you unaware. Isn't that what I said in that sermon two or three weeks ago when I sounded so mean? Is that the daily cares... The things that we have to go through in this life can distract us to the point that we're not really paying attention to God and to what He is doing, and therefore it could come upon us unexpectedly. So we need to be expectant, or to use the word expectant in a different way, we need to be pregnant with the ideas and the thought of what is coming and what we need to do to produce what God wants produced. It's so easy to let the cares of this life 
jobs, entertainment, distractions, hobbies, social life, so many things that may not, some of them be sin, are wrong in and of themselves become wrong when they take our focus from God. So that all that he's doing and about to do, his work is not our main focus, but getting through life is our focus and being entertained and comforted and living in peace and without pain, enjoying life. Is it wrong to enjoy life? No. Is it wrong to relax a little here and there? No. Is it wrong to visit and socialize? No. But if any of those things get out of balance to the point they're affecting our concentration and our focus on God, then they could cost us eternal life. And if something costs you eternal life, that means eternal death, and therefore, what you are doing has become sin because it has broken the first commandment. And whatever we think and do and enjoy has become an idol because it separates us from God. And when we're separated from God, we're going to die. So we need to, each of us, analyze our lives and see what are those things that might distract us and take us and our focus away from our purpose here. That is spiritual growth and overcoming. Now, God may have some physical jobs for us, building a village, building villages, preparing for others to come, are things that need to be done. And perhaps things having to do with his temple, with Jerusalem itself, may have to be done. And those are important and must get done if they are a commission that God is giving us. But at the same time, our spiritual focus and building of the spiritual temple should be the primary focus. These other things need to be done and shall be done if they be God's will. And we should be willing to participate and help in any way we can even if it's only through prayer and, and uh, encouragement or whatever. But there is none of us here that is too old, too feeble, too sick, or too anything to mind the spiritual temple. Now that should be the key focus and not let other things take us away. Well, there's a warning here in Luke 21. The whole world is going to come apart, but you keep your focus where it needs to be because that's what's truly important. Well, I want to skip down. I'll skip over a few of these. Let's pick up Acts 20. Here we'll get verse 22. Now behold, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, 
save that the Holy Spirit witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. He said, I, I don't know what I'm going to run into, but I know it's going to be bad. That's what God has given me as my lot. But none of these things move me. I'm not emotionally distressed or disturbed by them. Neither count I my life dear to myself. So that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the eternal Emmanuel, or Christ, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Well, he didn't let himself be moved by whatever might come upon him. And he knew that it would be coming. Had to be because he knew the people hated God. And therefore, they would hate him when he came and told of God. This comes with the territory. He didn't even count his life dear to himself. He said, I know I may have to die. They're going to kill me someday. You know what? They eventually did. They killed him. They tried a lot of times and almost got it done. And he would survive and revive and go on. And he didn't let it deter him. Now what if you or I walked out this door after services today, and somebody started throwing rocks at us and bounced a big one off our head and left us laying there to die. And we came back to consciousness in about 30 minutes with blood running all down our face and all over us. And we had an enormous headache and hurt all over from bruises, from stones hitting our bodies all over the place. And somebody was standing back and said, you get out of that church and don't you ever mention God again or we're going to finish you off. How many of us would turn tail as cowards and say, I think I'm going to go away and shut up? Or would we count our life dear? We are not our own. We are bought with a price. And when you repented and were baptized, and went into that watery grave. You symbolically died. And when you came out of that water, you had a new life. The minister had held you under there for a minute or a minute and a half. You'd have died. But God said, put them under and bring them back out. And symbolically, they died there. They don't belong to themselves anymore. They belong to me. I bought them with a price, my own life. And Paul understood that. So he didn't count his life dear. Now it is natural and human to hang on to this physical life as long as we can. And we'll go through all kinds of medical protocols, all kinds of uh, chemicals, all kinds of radiation, We'll go through all kinds of things. This pill, that pill, the other pill, whoever's going to save us in this life. Human beings will go to whatever lengths are necessary to try to be in comfort and not die for as long as possible because we dearly love this life. Now when we're converted, we're supposed to have a different view of it. 
Now we belong to him. And if he so chooses to let us die, then that is acceptable to us. I admire people who will say it doesn't matter. I'm in God's hands. Whether it be persecution, whether it be sickness, whether it be accident, whatever it might be, God is going to take care of me. We can be hated and persecuted. We can be killed. And then he will. But it is going to take martyrdom to cause them to repent. God knows that. Many of the called out people who are in the church of God today are going to have to face death and die physically because they were unwilling to crucify the flesh day by day and learn to walk in the Spirit. Therefore, they will have to give up this life and die a horrible death to bring them to repentance. People are very hard-headed and hard-hearted by nature and selfish to the core. And it is only by the Spirit of God that we can be converted to the point we are willing to say, I'm yours. Through hell or high water, through sickness or in death, I'm yours. We pledge that to each other sometimes when we get married as human beings. In sickness or in health, till death do us part. And we have an easier time perhaps sometimes living up to that than we do making the same promises to Christ and God the Father himself because we'll take it back. God wanted to know about Abraham, didn't he? Now I know. And with you and me, God has to know that he comes first in our lives. And the easier we accept that, internalize that, and live that, the easier it's going to be on us. And perhaps we can even be protected from what is coming. But if we're not willing to give in and surrender our emotions, our feelings, our lives to God, <clears throat> then he may say, well, I guess that one's going to have to go into the tribulation because that's the only way they're going to learn. Now, he will make us learn. But why do we have to learn the hard way? Why will you die, O Israel? God doesn't want that. Let's go to Colossians 1. Verse 21, Colossians 1, 21. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled. We weren't godly. We didn't think God's way. We were just carnal human beings out here in the world, alienated from God. He's reconciled us in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Through his perfect life, we can be made unblameable and unsinful 
our sins can be forgiven. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Christ suffered, he said, physically, and here I am suffering today for the church, because they had entered that period of time in his life, in that era of the church, when the whole world hated them. Now we are on the verge of entering that point where the whole world hates us. So Paul's experiences are not just a historical record and we can say, oh, poor Paul. Because pretty soon we can say, oh, poor me. And we need to know and have the knowledge, the strength that comes from Paul's testimony and that of others who wrote in the Bible. Because we will face the same things they faced, being hated of all peoples. Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. So I'm going through what I'm going through to fulfill the word of God. And we're going to go through the same thing to fulfill God's word, aren't we? Even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. The mystery of us becoming God. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The whole world needs to understand the hope of glory through us. It was the church that was held up in that way in that day, and it is the church that is going to be held up in that way again. Not all of us are going into the tribulation and die, brethren, a 10% remnant of the church is going to be taken out, go to a place, and be blessed of God in such a way that it will be a testimony of the glory of God to the whole world. But they just will find it totally unacceptable. The New World Order will hold more allure, more opportunity, and more promise to them than God blessing his people out in the desert somewhere. And that's where they will look. It is going to come in such a way that if it were possible, it would deceive the very elect. They're going to make it look so good and so righteous and so godly that it is going to captivate the imagination of the whole world and would you and me if we don't understand God's word and what God is doing as opposed to what they're doing. It is going to be an incredible thing. Today we look at the news and we see New World Order and we see the shenanigans of the people who are raping and pillaging us financially and economically in the world and we say, they're crooks. And they are. But when this whole thing comes down, it is going to be packaged in such a way that it is going to be absolutely holy to the world. 
Satan can send his people, his agents, as ministers of light. I can't even imagine how human beings pushed by Satan are going to appear so glorious and so holy and so righteous. And it's going to be at the snap of a finger. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be easy. Just like accepting Jesus has always been so easy to the Protestants of this world. Now, you and I know, don't we, that righteousness comes hard. That it takes time. That it takes prayer. It takes fasting. It takes study of God's Word. It takes practicing every day to be what we need to be. It does not come easy. Whatever spiritual strength you and I have today did not come easy. It came through trial, trouble, tribulation, difficulty, pain, repentance, agony of the soul, didn't it? But to these people, what they hold out in front of them will seem so easy, so attractive, so beautiful. But they say, this has to be it. And the whole world will worship the beast. Amazing. All right, let's wrap this up very quickly now. I've got about three more I want to go to, three or four, and I'll try to do it rapidly. First Peter 4. There's some very, very hopeful scriptures here. First Peter 4, let's see about verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be you therefore sober and watch to prayer. And above all things, this, this is a, an important thing he's about to say, above all things, have fervent love among yourselves, for love shall cover the multitude of sins. It's so easy for us, under pressure, and when we see others make mistakes, to become judgmental, to become condemnative. But he says, love each other fervently, and that that will cover a multitude of sins. Look out for one another. Forgive one another. Help one another. Don't judge and condemn one another. But love each other so much that you're willing to overlook the warts that people still have. Because we all do. Above all things, we've got to love each other. Why are so many going to turn away? Iniquity shall abound, and the love of many will wax cold, Matthew 24. And here he's telling us the solution to that. Love each other deeply, fervently, so that we can overcome sin among us. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man has received the gift of God, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold forgiveness, grace, love of God. 
If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God, the words of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God gives, that God in all things may be glorified through Emmanuel, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. So be it. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice! inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Love each other. No trouble is coming. Don't think it strange. Overcome it. Glory in Christ, because he overcame it. So the world will hate you, but don't worry about it. I have overcome the world. Ephesians 6, verse 6. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service, as to the eternal and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man does, the same shall he receive of the eternal, whether he be bond or free. Let's skip down to verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The devil's going to hate us, come after us, and when he's kicked down from heaven for the last time, he's going to come and try to destroy every last man, woman, and child of us. And then's when we flee to a place where God will protect us through the tribulation. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take to you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, all you need to do spiritually, to stand. So stand, therefore. Don't run like a coward. Stand. Didn't God tell us all through the Old Testament and the prophecies about today not to fear, but to be of good courage, to be strong, and to work? He's saying the same thing here. When you see all these things coming and Satan and the world against you, take on his, his whole armor and stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness truth and the righteousness that it produces, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We move forward, we don't stand still, we stand up and we move forward. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. It's going to require faith to march forward and do what God wants done in spite of the whole world hating us. But if God be for us, who can be against us? God's on our side when we do His will and His purpose. And He can protect us from this whole world. Now the whole world is going to try to kill the two witnesses the whole time they're preaching. They're going to be hated. People will try to kill them. And they won't be able to. It just can't happen. With all their bombs, their guns, their whatever they got. Lasers, they will not be able to do a thing against them until it's God's will. 
And when it is, three and a half days before Christ returns, they're going to be killed in a war in the streets of Jerusalem. So God can protect as long as He needs to, and He can remove His protection when it's time to. See, God knows what He's doing. And we have to stand in Him, and we'll be able, through faith, to take all this. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying always, being always in an attitude and approach, instant in prayer, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching, therefore, or thereunto, with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And he said, even pray for him, that he might be able to open his mouth boldly, because God doesn't want a squeaking mouse. He wants us to be bold to do the work of God and not shrink back. God takes no pleasure in those who shrink back. Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the eternal always. Again I say, rejoice. Let your moderation be known to all men. The eternal is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. He says, don't worry. Do people tend to worry? Yes, they do. But if we're close to God, he says, don't worry. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. There's some instruction. We have pain, we have suffering, we have physical maladies, we have emotional troubles and difficulties of all kinds, don't we? He says, let your, let your needs be known to God. Well, he says, come to me. Make your petition. He said he heard the cries of his people in Egypt, and he finally reached down and delivered them. He says he is going to deliver us before the flesh fail before him, Isaiah 55. He's going to do it. But we need to seek him. Hebrews 10, 32. I've got two more. Hebrews 10, verse 34. For you had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. Paul speaking to these people. They were willing to give whatever they had to help him do the job that God had given him to do. Knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance, that the spiritual things are far more important than the physical. We have to come to have that understanding. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience. That's what we are short of right now. We want to see God turn things around and turn his face to us and shine upon us. And it's easy to get a little impatient and think, well, when, God? When? When? Habakkuk, Habakkuk even approached God says, when are you going to do all this? Why are we hated? Why don't you deliver us? Words to that effect. And then he finally said, oops, wait a minute, maybe I better go sit on my watch and patiently wait for God to do his thing. Now I'm hoping and anticipating that beginning this new year in God's calendar, God will begin to do some things. And I'm a little impatient, frankly, sometimes. So I have to read this and say, I have need of patience. I'm anxious. I want to see it happen. 
You know, it may, and it may not. It may be God's time, and it may be another year away. And boy, is it going to be hard to adjust my attitude and be patient another year if I have to wait another year to see God's people delivered and these prophecies fulfilled. Now, I'm hoping and praying and thinking that maybe it's not. I hope so. But if not, I need to have patience that after I've done the will of God, I might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. It says that back in one of the minor prophets. It will come. It will not tarry. It, it will hurry. Well, it says something like that in Isaiah too. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. We, don't, we can't afford to draw back, to shrink back, to give up, to, to lose our faith, to forget having hope, no matter what. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. One more, First Peter 5. Here, let's pick it up in verse 6. First <coughs> Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, when his time and purpose comes. Now, we expect to be exalted by God, to be forgiven of God, our sins wiped out and blessed of God, don't we? But he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Any one of us, God cares for. He brought us out of this world. We may go through trials, troubles, tribulations, even face death, and may even die. It's okay. It's okay. He cares for us. Be sober. Take things seriously. Be vigilant. If you thought there was a bear in the woods next to your campfire, you would be vigilant. Been there, done that, I know. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world but the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory by Emmanuel, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. After you have suffered a while, you will be established, you will be settled, and you will be strengthened. So in this life, we will have trouble. But if we endure it faithfully and serve God with all our heart, we will be delivered and established and settled in love and in peace and the blessing of Almighty God.